You're listening to audio from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. If you'd like to learn more about Parkview, find more resources, or give to our ministry, please visit parkviewchurch.org. All right, we got an exciting Sunday here and, and a lot going on, but i got to tell you about last Sunday. Uh, you know we did a food drive, a canned food drive for uh, the uh, pantries in our community, and I'm pleased to tell you that you brought in 1,545 pounds of food last week, so good job with that. We divided it between two uh, places, and we were told by the North Liberty uh, Pantry that that was the largest church donation they'd ever received. So good job, Parkview. Give yourselves a hand. Excellent. I do need to talk to you a little bit. This, this chili cook-off might be getting out of hand, okay? So... Um, Yes, I did ask that we do this, and this is an exciting time, and uh, we got to talk about sportsmanship here a little bit. There's a, I didn't know church people could talk trash over chili. <laughs> you people need to calm yourselves down a little bit. Uh, I'm told that one of the chilies is called the best chili Mark Balmer's ever tasted, so that's a lot of pressure on me to decide if that's actually true or not. But anyway, we're going to have some fun afterwards. It is intentional. Uh, one of the things that we really want to emphasize is loving one another. And we've been talking about our household initiative. Uh, one of my favorite theologians and pastors was, was uh, Martin, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he said this. It's very interesting. He said that loving one another is more important than orthodoxy. Interesting thing coming from him. He says, alas, let us admit it. It is possible for a person to be absolutely correct and yet not be a Christian. It's possible for men and women to give perfect intellectual assent to the propositions that are found to be in the Bible. It is possible for them to be interested in theology and, and to say of one theology is superior to another and, and to accept and defend and argue about it, and yet to be utterly devoid of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God in their hearts." There have been men also who have clearly been perfectly orthodox, champions of the faith, faith, and yet they have denied that very faith in the bitterness with which they have sometimes defended it. I repeat that the test of orthodoxy, while it is so vital and essential, it's not enough. There is a more thoroughgoing test. It is a test of brotherly love, love for one another going to encourage you today just to enjoy our time of chili and, and enjoy one another. It's, you get a free pass on whether or not you remember somebody's name. Maybe they passed the, uh, the, the sign-up thing to get their, their name tag or whatever. And uh, whatever. And just enjoy one another. Try to meet some new people. And it should be a great time. And we'll look forward to seeing Pastor Thomas get a pie in the face. All right? So that'll be good. Vote for Thomas. Vote for Thomas. Anyway, um, just by way of review, we're going to be in Luke uh, 7. You can turn there and be ready. Remember, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We talked about a, a worthiness and authority and faith. And last Sunday, we addressed the matter of doubt. John sends his disciples to Jesus. And, and they were to ask, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Why would John ask this after all that had taken place? Does John really question who Jesus is, whether or not he's the Messiah? We observed from Jesus' response that he was patient with John's doubt. 
Jesus answers him by having John's disciples personally witness miracles and by reminding John of what the prophet Isaiah had written centuries earlier about what the Messiah would actually do. Doubt is normal and does not have to be a bad thing when it drives us to seek the Lord for answers. And we can say, Lord, help my unbelief. If you're struggling with doubt, it might be good to ask yourself the question, what have you forgotten about God's Word or even about His actions in your life thus far? Jesus really did that for John, didn't He? He, he reminded him what the prophet Isaiah said and then, and then gave him miracles to remember to keep his faith strong. Today we'll see that Jesus was willing to both dine with a Pharisee and be anointed by a sinful woman. We'll also see that heartfelt worship increases with a greater understanding of true forgiveness. We'll also see that assuming our own behavior to be more righteous can cause us to miss out on genuine worship and could also be the cause of our missing our own need for grace and for forgiveness. Look with me now at Luke chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender who had two, had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you now and we ask that you have accepted our, our songs of praise and, and our worship. And Father, now we would ask that you would just meet us where we are. That your spirit would just speak into each of our hearts and lives. And Father, may we hear what we need to hear and see what we need to see. And may we respond appropriately to your glory and to your honor. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. 
Today's text, I believe, tells us one of the ultimate stories of the gospel. Amazing. I'd love to call it my favorite, but you'd bust me later for saying the next one's my favorite. But anyway, uh, it, it, wonderful. And interestingly, this account might be found in all four gospels. And I say might because it seems to be as the same account, but there are variances. Matthew and Mark uh, are, are most alike, and they, call, they refer to Simon the leper. So a little difference there, and uh, the woman anointing his head. And there's also the concern over the waste of money. In John's gospel, she's named as Mary. Matthew, Mark, and John place this during the season of the Passion, and they would consider the anointing, the preparing for burial. So there are some variances here. And Luke's account places this in the midst of this Galilean ministry here. We cannot be definite as to whether or not this was a more than once occasion or uh, just different takes on the same event. And Luke is certainly very specific in detail. We see that all the way through his gospel. There are parts of this story that are really quite curious to us, I mean, especially in our culture today. In that day and age uh, of which Luke writes, there were some unique factors, unique circumstances. A dinner like this would most likely have been held in an upper-class residence, and it would have been in an inner courtyard, and very unlike how we might do it, instead of having everybody in and closing the doors, they would do quite the opposite. The, the place would be wide open, and the community, the people could just come in as they wanted and gather around and kind of circle them or, or come back in and out, whatever. It was, it was just a wide-open event. They were able to observe it would also be common for that dinner uh, to be maybe a precursor to a discussion or a debate or a part of the dinner. Invited guests would then come in and they would gather, forming sort of a U-shape, and they would be lying on their left sides on a couch or a cushion with their left elbow down, and then they would be eating with their right hands. This is what we might see with this Pharisee's meal to have looked like. As the meal progresses, the group of people observing it might grow, hoping to hear what was being discussed. This might help us understand how this woman came into the scene where we would assume she would not otherwise be welcome. So we've got this woman here, and she enters the scene with this alabaster jar of perfume and, or, or ointment, and she may have gone to retrieve it for the occasion. The text kind of implies that. Her description, a woman of the city and a sinner. While it's not directly specified here, it's commonly assumed that her sins were of the sexual nature based upon her actions in the account and the Pharisees' thought about her. Very judgmental. We cannot be totally certain. Certainly, we could all imagine that her actions of this event would gradually gather the attention of everyone in the room. Perhaps there was lively conversation or, or aggressive debate. Maybe some trying to impress others with their knowledge and their insight. And, and may, maybe there was occasional laughter at sarcasm. But as this woman makes her way to Jesus, little by little, the room becomes more silent. Now, today we've got Central Campus and East Campus together. Now, not everybody knows that there's two campuses. Uh, if you're here in the 9 o'clock, you know that I preach and I leave I'm not just leaving because I don't like you. I'm going to preach at East Campus. And then when I'm done there, I pre come back and preach here for the second time. That's why I'm late to the second service, okay? So just so, to clarify that. But East Campus, I need you to listen. need you to represent, okay? 
East Campus is very hard to corral. They are highly social. And, and if you are not a loud and demanding, obnoxious person at the beginning of service or after a, a greeting time, you can't corral them. But what happens is you just, you just go on with the service, and little by little people realize, oh, he's praying, or she's, she's reading Scripture, or something, and then you, you pull them in gradually. And I think that's probably what happened here, something like that. I would imagine that it took longer for others uh, than, than some, but before long, all eyes are on Jesus and on this woman. The host, this Pharisee, becomes disgusted. Look again at verse 39. Now when the Pharisees who had, or Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this was who was touching him, for she is a sinner. It's very safe to assume that he wasn't the only one in the room that was thinking this, right? Uh, and he's apparently repulsed by the fact that she's touching Jesus and likely maybe ready to ask her to leave. Yet being a Pharisee, it's possible that he only withheld his, his comment thinking that perhaps this event might cause for a reduction in Jesus' credibility with people. He might be thinking, yeah, if he's letting this happen, then the people aren't going to respect him anymore. Can you imagine it now? By this time, the room's gone completely silent, okay? So, so East Campus people, what, five, six minutes, right? Anyway, it takes a while. Only sound in the room is the sound of this woman weeping over the feet of Jesus. And maybe you see some in the room pointing and judging. But the silence then turns to murmuring and even some gasps in the room as she unbinds her hair to wipe his feet. You see, in this culture, in that day and age, it was completely inappropriate for a woman to unbind her hair. A woman's hair was only to be let down in the presence of her husband. Never in public and never in the presence of another man. The Jewish Talmud allowed for divorce for such an offense. Can you imagine? It rivaled undressing in public. So here she is, a weeping mess, bent over the feet of Jesus, and her hair now down. And you and I, I want you to stop and think with me. What's going on here? And, and had she planned this out, the text offers some clues here. But, but first, I want you to notice the Pharisee is thinking thoughts of contempt about Jesus. We can't be sure why he even invited Jesus. Perhaps it's pride-based. He knows that if Jesus is popular, he's, all these people are following him. If he brings Jesus in, then he gets to hold this big event, and he's kind of the center of attention. Could be. At a minimum, he may have just been curious about Jesus. But it seems safe to me to say that he did not respect Jesus. He, he's quick to judge Jesus, isn't he, in his thoughts. He says, if this man were a prophet, then he would know. Notice that Jesus uh, addresses his thoughts, right? We'll see more indications that he didn't respect Jesus. But truly, nothing gets past our Lord, does it? He, uh, our Lord addresses his thoughts. Now, I want to pause here and say, I don't know about you, but sometimes it's troubling to remember that the Lord is aware of every thought you have. You know, you can carry yourself how you want, and other people can see you how you want them to see you, but the reality is, is you can't get anything past our Lord. 
He, he knows the thoughts that go through your mind when no one else is around. Thoughts that no one else knows. He knows the things that you mumble to yourself about someone when you walk away from them. He knows those prideful thoughts that you have about how much better you are than who you're around. He knows those angry and hurtful thoughts. He knows every selfish thought you've had. Those thoughts of lust that run away from you. The greedy thoughts, the, the thoughts where you're doing something that seems maybe benevolent, but really in, in, in your mind you're doing it because you're greedy. You want something out of it. He knows the true motives behind all of your actions. Nothing is hidden from God. And that's intimidating. So, so Jesus here replies to Simon's thoughts with a parable. And I love that he did that because he, he could have just jumped right to the fact. That he could have just said, I, I tell you that her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, and he who is forgiven, little loves little. He could have just said that. Instead, a parable of two debtors, a, a one owing 50 denarii, the other 500. For context, a denarii was a, a day laborer's wage. He'd get one denarii for a day. So these are both large debts. I want you to understand that. Because they couldn't just be paid in 50 days or 500 days because you still had to provide a living for yourself in the process. And a denarii would barely cover that. For further context, the penalty for unpaid debts called for, the, for those who are in debt to be put in jail if they couldn't pay it. So understand, while the quantities are different, the, the judgment was serious in both cases. Look at verse 42. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt for both. Now which of them will love him more? How do we not love what Jesus does here? He makes Simon respond to a very obvious question, doesn't he? Consider again the fact that, that no one there heard the thoughts of Simon or knew what Simon was thinking. They probably could have guessed, but Simon hadn't verbalized them. So Jesus has this woman weeping over and anointing his feet. And then he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. All present would hear it. But Jesus directs it to Simon, who had actually said nothing. Now, we could maybe wonder if this is a courtesy to the host, asking permission to say something. But Simon is put on the spot to answer this very obvious question. Now, which of them will love him more? Look at his perhaps begrudging answer. Look at verse 43 again. Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Isn't that interesting that he says, I suppose, or, or I assume, Right? Meaning, uh, assumption that something is the case on the basis of evidence or probability without proof or certain knowledge. Understand, anyone in the room would have gotten this answer correct without supposing anything. It's obvious, right? It's a clear answer. Then Jesus declares before all present that Simon got it right. Simon, you get a gold star on your paper. Did they do that at the university? Gold stars? No? They're not, not popular anymore? But now it gets a bit rough for Simon. Look at verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? 
I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. I love what Jesus does here. Not only rebukes Simon, but he, he does so in turning all attention to this woman who's anointing his feet. He turns to this woman that John's Gospel identifies as Mary, and he says, look. But again, what's going on here with, with Mary? Was she reviewing her life at this point? Is she overwhelmed with shame? Reviewing some of the pain in her life that have, have led her to be in the condition that she's in. Is she feeling the judgmental stares just coming at her, and yet while sensing the genuine love of Christ? Now remember the, the idea that I presented to you that Simon had not in, invited Jesus out of respect for him. I think it's really driven from the text here. It says, Jesus said to him, I entered your house. And again, it was on his invitation, remember? I entered your house. You gave me no water. And normally you would at least have a servant uh, clean the feet. At a minimum, you'd provide water. But that didn't happen. He says, you gave me no kiss. This was an ancient Near East greeting, like an enthusiastic handshake would be today. You know, Middle Eastern cultures still do this. To, you know, kiss one another on the cheeks. And actually, 2 Corinthians says to greet one another with a holy kiss. And we thought maybe that would be a good part of our household initiative. But, you know, starting that on a chilly Sunday didn't seem right to me. Anyway. Since you didn't anoint my head, again, a fairly common courtesy. Sometimes just olive oil. Clearly, Simon invited him to be there, but seemed to be less than hospitable. Jesus uses this woman's behavior, uh, by the way, the behavior that Simon considers to be shameful, to bring to light Simon's shameful behavior. Again, Simon, you didn't even provide any water for my feet. This woman has wet my feet with her tears and has wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a common courtesy. She's not stopped to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head. She anointed my feet. Again, only the, the lowly people would touch another's feet. It was a servant's role. Which, by the way, should add to the significance of the teaching later on where we know that Jesus washes His own disciples' feet. Remember? And Peter says, oh, no, no, you're not doing that to me. And Jesus says, oh, if you, if, if you, you don't let me do this, I have no part in you. And then Peter says, hey, wash all of me. And Jesus is like, don't get carried away. Uh, But not only would she touch Jesus' feet, she would also wipe them with her hair. Her hair was her glory. Clearly, she considered glorifying God the first priority. What a, what a beautiful expression of humble gratitude. She uses her perfume, her anointment, or ointment, as considered valuable by the other Gospels. Maybe she considers it only good enough for his feet. Look at verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. 
And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. This statement by Jesus causes some debate. Some would argue that that Jesus is declaring her sins forgiven based upon a prior response of faith, assuming that somewhere along the way she'd heard and responded to the message of the coming kingdom. They would say it was not her first encounter with Christ. And Jesus is then declaring her to be forgiven based upon the fact that she'd previously responded. So the argument is her great expression of love is in clear response to having been forgiven. Others argue that the therefore means something, and is presenting her actions here as a display of her very new faith. And Jesus declares her as forgiven. Now, it's essential. We've got to understand good gospel doctrine here. We must never allow ourselves to think that her great display of love earned her forgiveness or salvation. We can't go down that road. Okay? There, it must be seen as her actions are signifying faith that she has. I'd argue that either scenario is possible here. Jesus' interaction with Simon reminds us that Jesus knows our thoughts. What do we know from Scripture? The Lord looks upon the heart. So while we have no record of words from her, we know that Jesus knew her thoughts. Clearly, this was an expression of her faith, no matter how old it was. Earlier, I asked you what's going on here. Why the tears? Had she planned this? I would say maybe some of it. If she had really planned this, then why not bring water and a towel? She she had an alabaster jar. And the text implies that she got it because he was there. But even in that day, uh, many women would actually wear them around their neck as a necklace. It's possible that that she, like many others, uh, as she went in there, she was doing it somewhat out of curiosity. Maybe she'd just been following Jesus and she heard that he'd stopped there. Again, maybe she'd already come to faith. But perhaps she came in, and, and, and as she does, she observes that Jesus' feet are filthy. And this bothers her right away. She, she, she sees that Simon has disrespected Jesus. And maybe she noticed from the start that the, the other guests were welcome with a kiss, but, but not Jesus. Maybe she saw or even sensed that Jesus was treated with contempt in a room full of prideful leaders. Or maybe Simon's servant had methodically washed everyone's feet but skipped over Jesus. And and, and then she's overwhelmed with, with it and she takes matters into her own hands. Perhaps her initial thought was only to anoint Jesus' feet, but she finds herself overwhelmed with emotion and tears fall onto the dusty feet of Jesus. Martin Luther called her tears heart water. I love that. Heart water. Now her heart water has dripped upon his dusty feet, and now they're muddy. She cannot stop until this matter is made right. She takes her hair and wipes and cries and weeps until 
she is pleased that he has been honored. Look with me at verse 49. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Again, he didn't say your actions, did he? He says, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What do we do with that, that verse? Who is this who even forgives sins? And the others who are responding. I, I want you to understand, this is not just about Simon. This is not just about this woman. It's about responding to Jesus. So I've got to stop and say, how about you? How do you respond to Jesus? Do you come before the Lord in this confidence based upon your own pious moralism? You, you can look at your life and go, I live a pretty good life. I don't get in any trouble. I do the right things. And, and you feel pretty good about it. And, and maybe you secretly think that you are worthy of Christ. Worthy of His forgiveness. Worthy of His grace. And worthy of His love. Can I just remind you that the religious leaders were constantly surprised by the actions of Jesus. He essentially taught them that, no, that, that anyone who's confident in his or her own righteousness was a fool. How do you approach? How do you respond? Do you approach the Lord as this woman did? So mindful of all the reasons why you shouldn't be there. You can quickly make a list in your mind that says, I shouldn't be anywhere near this Messiah. Others, other people could help you make that list. How do you approach Him? And what effect does that have on how you approach a time of worship like this? And what, what effect does it have on the other six days of the week? Are you constantly mindful that it is the grace and the mercy of Christ by which you stand? And I hope it makes you a person who's so thankful that, that, that Jesus welcomes the sinners. Yeah, he picked on Simon a little bit, but he went to his house. He was there. But he honored this woman who'd been so criticized. How do you respond to Christ? We're going to head into a time in our, at the Lord's Supper right now. And I'm going to encourage you to make sure you have that relationship with Christ. If you want to participate and you didn't get one of these on the way, way in, just slip your hand in the air and they'll come around and bring them to you. If you're here and you've never invited Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, if you've never accepted His offer of forgiveness and grace, maybe now's the time. Just in the humbleness of your own heart as you recognize your own worthiness to be there, you just say, Jesus, forgive me. I believe that you are the way, the truth, and the life.
And I believe that you're one who would be willing to love one like me by going to the cross and rising again in victory over the grave. Just even now, in the quietness of your heart, invite him to be your Savior. And then encourage you to participate. It's time for us to celebrate together as a household of believers. Sharing in this supper does not impart grace to us. It doesn't provide salvation to us. Rather, it is a reminder and a celebration of the grace we receive through faith in Christ Jesus. We'll partake of the bread and the cup as reminders of the body and the blood of Christ by which we are saved through faith. It's essential that we prepare our hearts for this time. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, whoever eats therefore of the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and then so eat the bread and drink the cup of the, uh, of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. If you're a parent and you've got a small child with you here, I encourage you to help them decide whether or not to participate. But Paul reminds us that, we, that Jesus said to do this in remembrance of me. Do you remember him? Just prepare your heart. We're told that Jesus broke the bread and he shared it with his disciples and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after the supper, he took the cup. And Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul writes, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you pray with me? Father, we give you thanks and praise. You are so good. Father, we thank you that our sins that alone disqualify us from being in your presence can be dealt with by our Savior. And he was willing to purchase us to deal with our debt of sin. And Father, anyone here who knows that we've sinned, we realize that our debt is great and so we are thankful. We realize that we've been forgiven of so much, therefore we love much. Father, that may that be evident here when we worship together in here, uh, and when we have time of just being together, but may it be evident every day of the week that we are people just grateful for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. People who live our days to praise the name of our Savior Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.